Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at MovieFail. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Esther Rosenfield. And today we're going to be discussing the ninth episode of season three of Deadwood, which is Gay Fiesta. I'm sorry, Amateur Night. <laughs> oh, I screen capped that. <laughs> I did too. Um, <laughs> it definitely should have been called Gay Fiesta. It really should. I what mean, were they thinking? It's in the episode. Um, and it has, unlike Amateur Night, has, uh, you know, I would say, you know, several meanings. So, um, <laughs> <Does. laughs> uh, so yeah, um, this is an episode directed by Adam Davidson, who, uh, is a, seems like mostly a television director. Um, he directed, uh, a few episodes of Community, uh, he did some HBO shows like Entourage and Treme, but also, uh, directed, uh, some episodes of maybe one, I don't know, uh, was a director on the show Kings, which is a show that also stars Ian McShane. So there you go. Oh, no kidding. Um, and then it was also written by Nick Town and Zach Whedon. So Nick Town was, um, has been an assistant writer on a lot of these episodes and then also was, um, wrote some of Preacher uh, and a, a show about the Unabomber. So that's his, uh, his thing. And he was also an actor. Oh, I think I watched that. Did you? Okay. I th- If I'm thinking of... Yeah, you know what? That show was all right. From 2017? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That show was actually pretty cool. Yeah, I think he might have been the main writer on it. It looked like that was like his big thing. Um, With uh, Sam Worthington, yeah. And it was Sam Worthington, no kidding. Um, he was the main guy. He was, and you know what? He, he was pretty good, and I don't really think much of him. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and then apparently he also was an actor in Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, uh, which brings oh, us geez. to Zach Whedon, who also helped write Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, obviously. It wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be a TV show in the mid-2000s if there wasn't someone in the Whedon family involved in exactly, some capacity. Exactly. He is a Whedon. So he helped write Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. He's, he has like an appearance in it as well. Um, also Fringe, Southland, uh, John from Cincinnati. Uh, <laughs> Naturally. And also, um, the way I know Zach Whedon is because he has written uh, quite a few of the Serenity uh, comics. Uh, which uh, were sort of <laughs> all we have post uh, the Serenity film that was supposed to be a trilogy. So, um, yeah, it was just, it's all new faces and names, although a lot of them have some connections to the to the show in other ways. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is a very strange episode. It is a very... <laughs> this is super weird. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like, we talk about... Um... One of the things we used to talk about on Game of Thrones all the time is the table setting episode. Um, like the And in Game of Thrones, it would go on for like 60% of the season. We're kind of setting the table oh, yeah. in this one. Um, and Deadwood doesn't typically have those just because kind of things are always in motion at all times. Yep. There's never really a moment where it's like, oh, well, this is the calm before the storm. Something is always happening in Deadwood. Um, but not really in this episode. Um, things do happen, but it is definitely more about people getting things in position and kind of this roiling tension before it bubbles over, um, which is cool. Like it's and it, it is kind of strangely directed too. like there's all these handheld yeah, shots. Yeah. And they're really close up and it's often on Adams for some reason. It'll be like normal shots of other people, yeah. and then like Adams, it'll be like, look at Adams, and here's Al walking towards Adams for some reason. <laughs> like, why are we doing this? Um, yeah, uh, 
to, to compare this, so the way I could have seen this going um, is that the show, the episode sort of culminates in a big event, kind of like the bicycle ride across the thoroughfare, right? That was like a an event that sort of brought the town together. And Amateur Night is kind of that, but it doesn't feel the same way. There's not a sense of, and it's kind of has to do with the editing, I think, around the Amateur Night itself where it doesn't really let you... There are moments of sort of joy, but there's a lot of buzzkill moments. There's a lot of... There's a lot of quick editing so that you never really settle into just people enjoying themselves. And then even when we get a moment that's really sweet, like when Richardson is juggling, um, Mm. we have Farnham come in, and in his least funny appearance maybe ever, he just, like, yells at Richardson and walks away. Like, that's his whole... His whole thing. So, um... Yeah, I think it's weird because it just doesn't let you settle into the... And maybe that's the point. Maybe it's not supposed to, like, because of the the context of what we're, we're seeing. Um, but I think that's what makes it feel different from, for example, the Bicycle episode. It's funny because the episode starts really, like, choppily. Like, there are a lot of really... And Deadwood episodes kind of tend to start this way, where there'll be kind of these quick little scenes, and then eventually you kind of ease into a longer scene, and it's like the ep- it's like there's prologue almost, and then the episode has begun, um, and it goes on for way longer in this one. Um, it's it doesn't really let you, like you say it doesn't really let you settle in in the way that an episode typically would, and it's kind of I guess you would call it unsettling. And purposefully so, given where we ended last week, because, you know, everything, there's so much uncertainty uh, surrounding what's going on in camp and so much uh, fear and so much anxiety. So it's cool. I, yeah, I, sorry, go ahead. I, but also, I think it doesn't really let, it also ties off so many, it tries to deal with so many storylines, right? It tries to get Fields, he doesn't leave, I guess, because we see him on Amateur Night, which is a bit confusing, but we see Fields trying to cut and run because he's just like, I'm... I'm done taking care of Steve and I'm just going to leave and that's whatever. And Odell's storyline wraps up and the Earps have been asked to leave. And like, so every, there's like these, all these main things that were even just introduced recently or over the course of several seasons or whatever, all of these fairly significant plot lines are just coming to a head. Uh, And then, but sort of just without much fanfare, I guess Odell's death being one of the most, significant of them but nothing particularly like it's not it's not a moment in the episode it's just it's kind of weird in that way you know what i mean like it and that's i think what makes it feel so choppy is that these major events are kind of just um rushed past yeah i i do agree with you i don't i don't necessarily see it as a bad thing i guess um Oh, no, it's not I don't know. Bad. Yeah, it's I don't just, know if you're being critical. It, but it, yeah, no, yeah. I agree with you. It is. It is a strangely constructed episode, which I think is. You know, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they kind of they take a swing with this one, and especially coming up on the end. I mean, they didn't know it would be the end of the series, but coming up this close on the end of the series to go a little uh, off script, I guess, just in terms of the typical structure of the episode is. Yeah, I I, I dig that, and you know, the, just just in terms of like. Uh, the way that all the all the leaders of town, well, the two really, you know, Al and um, and Hurst, they both spend the entire episode sequestered. Al is usually in the gem, obviously, but I think it's really purposeful here the way they depict Al. He's just taking meetings in his office the whole episode. He barely leaves the office, um, and Hurst 
I don't think ever leaves the hotel. He barely ever leaves his room. So it's just this notion of like these two are kind of sequestered away. They're holed up in their in their fortresses, uh, plotting against each other, uh, waiting for you know this this uh, battle that they know is about to break out. Uh, it's it's a it's a cool. It's not a bottle episode the way we think of bottle episodes, but for those two characters, it kind of almost is. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's certainly the way they they they're framing these characters. I guess the 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 comparison is just hard to between the two. It's hard to nail down because Al doesn't really seem to be doing anything. So, like the the closest we come to seeing any sort of action is that Wu has the best strategy of anyone. It sounds like because he's got 150 people who were supposed to come and work for Hearst, who he's keeping in Custer City, um, who I guess by not having them come in sort of starves Hearst of some resources, some labor. Um, I guess that's sort of the sum of it. But what we see on on Hearst's side, he's got these 25 Pinkertons in. Um, and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about what they're, what they're up to in the, in the town. Uh, but there's also this deal with, uh, Commissioner Jari, who's back in town again, um, to basically bring in a bunch of soldiers to, uh, flood the, the ballot box and put all of Hearst's people into office, which is like super messed up and crazy. Um, but uh, I actually wonder historically how co- how common that was because if you could just move like a platoon of of uh, of soldiers into like some frontier town or whatever, um, and just because the populations were so small, uh, and just radically change the balance of, of of the votes in a town, is was that used to manipulate um, votes? I, I don't know, but it sounds like it. See, it seems plausible. Um, so like, but these are big moves that Hearst's making and it doesn't seem like Al's really doing that. I don't know what Al's plan is here. Well, Al has seemed kind of, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to use this word this way, but kind of like neutered this season. Mm. He's very like, and you, what happened at the beginning of the episode, at the beginning of the season with Hearst cutting off his finger, I think is being, uh, it, it is implied that that is kind of a metaphorical castration on her yes, part. I, I agree. I agree. Yes. That he is, that he is, uh, and you can see this manifest in Al's like in frustration at his own. He's talked about this to himself, his own lack of seeming ability to do anything or to yes. act in any way. Um, and we see this, you know, and I don't want to jump straight to the end of the episode, but by the way, the final shot of the episode is again, him furiously wiping the bar. <laughs> yeah uh it's like this motif just keeps popping up of him just just anxiously scrubbing and it's almost like uh you get it's kind of like a lady macbeth thing almost the out damn spot like i get that kind of impression mm. but it's also just this manifest this physical manifestation of his frustration of his like i gotta i just gotta do something because i'm so bottled up because i f- feel so incapable of actually doing anything i just have to do something i just have to wipe the bar um well and also maybe it's in the hope that something will occur to him if he's doing some other mindless task as well you know um, that's that's true forcing it i like that forcing it out yeah um it doesn't seem like anything's come to him just yet but there's also i'll just say about this since we're talking about anyway this final scene is that it's um 
it seems to also have an unrelated context, which is he's singing, which we've never seen Al sing. Uh, and there's this amateur night going on, and everyone has holed up, right? So Al and Hurst are both intentionally staying away. Um, uh, Cy is staying away. Seth is staying away. All these significant players are not being inv- are not involved in this thing that the rest of the town is involved in. Um, but Al seems to have a particular aversion to it, despite his connection to Langrish. And when he sings this little song at the end, it almost makes it seem like, you know, one wonders, you know, was was Al did Al at one point want to be a performer, or like is that how he knows Langrish? Is that or that he's friends with him because it was his way of being attached in some way to that world, even though he, you know, that wasn't the path he ended up following. Um, I don't know. We really don't have much evidence on it, but it is curious to see him singing at the end of an episode that's all about performing. Um, and, and you almost uh, get the sense, like I, I get the sense that that song is something he actually learned from Langrish in whatever uh, history the two of them had because it's an Irish song, clearly. Yeah, could be, could be. Yeah, so Very I think true. that is a direct connection they're drawing. Exactly, yeah. So I, I don't know what that's supposed to mean per se, but that is sort of a backdrop to what is also going on, which is obviously his lack of planning um, on where to go next. Um, the other thing I'll say is that it's not, it wasn't a strategic move and like uh, anyone made it, it wasn't a, meant to be a plan. But I think it was a powerful scene to watch the kids walking through town uh, with Jane and Joni and with uh, Seth and Martha as a contrast to the 25 uh, Pinkerton showing up last episode. Yeah. And for Hearst to see that and how he wants to, you know, he said he wants to bring down, you know, the, the town and he hates it. And it's like Gamora. And to see this complete contrast, this, you know, peaceful you know, a uh, symbol of love basically walking through town, not to uh, uh, go all new agey and weird, but like that, that's what I mean. That's what it looks like. And, and, and it's just this huge clash. And I don't know that has any resonance with Hearst because he seems to be completely incapable of real um, empathy, but uh, it does, at least to the viewers that make a, make a point and also makes a, a strong point to the, to the town on, whose side Seth is on, right? Because Seth is in that procession. And so if ultimately it comes down to Seth versus X, X is going to look worse for not being part of that. It's like you're against the town and who we are. Um, so I, I like that as a as sort of a symbolic moment. Again, I don't know that it was, I don't think it was intended to be a message to Hearst at all, but I, I did think that like the letter, it does show a different kind of strength in, in, in the face of, you know, guns. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. I, I really like that moment of everyone walking through the town. Or not everyone, but it is a lot of characters. Um, a kind of walking through the town is this almost, like you say, this kind of peaceful protest almost. It kind of conjures that image um, of the uh, the nonviolent resistance. And Just, they're all linking arms or, or exactly, hands or whatever. Exactly. Right? It's yeah. very consciously drawing on that imagery. Um and especially using the children of the camp too, who aren't really characters in any way, except, really, for, no. except for Sophia, who is right. um, kind of, but sort of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the more lines she, she gets more lines as the show goes on, but it is, it is interesting to see that, especially considering how not nonviolent uh, the resistance to Hearst 
is in the rest of the episode and just in general, especially when it comes to Seth, who is kind of leading this procession. Um, it's just funny to see that contrasted with what he does later in the episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with, uh, with the Pinkerton guy? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, does he have a name, by the way? I don't know if it says anything in the uh, synopsis. Oh, I should have checked, because I think he does. Um, ba, ba, ba. So there's, well, there's a bunch of them. One of them is named Barrett, and that's the guy Hearst talks to at the beginning of the episode. Um, is he the one who gets taken to jail? I think it must be, because the guy um, that Morgan Earp shoots does not have a name in the synopsis. Yes, it is Barrett. That's who gets arrested. All right, so it's Barrett. Cool. Um, yeah, I just want to point out for folks at home who may not be aware of this, I think, I don't know if I pointed this out in the past, I may have, but it, it shocks me every time I think about it, so I'm going to say it again. Um, just so everyone is perfectly aware because we weren't we didn't know these were pinkertons until this episode right but yeah I mean, that's true one can guess you know and the last time we saw a pinkerton was Ms. Isinghausen, and she was sort of a agent type person rather than a an armed uh she was not the enforcer person. the she enforcement the enforcer, wing of right. the pinkertons for sure so uh, i just want to point out that there's this um this article which uh you may have seen esther uh in the New York Times, uh, called "Climate Chaos is Coming and the Pinkertons Are Ready." What? No. Yeah. So I did not see that. Yeah. This. This. Yeah. It's actually. It's not funny. It's terrifying. It sounds so, terrifying. Jesus. So just to give you, to, I'll link it so people can actually read more in depth. So it is apparently the case that the Pinkertons still exist, have rebranded as a private military corporation or. Oh, private Jesus security Christ. corporation. Of course. And they are being hired by uh, wealthy folks in the United States. This article came out this year, 2019. Oh my God. Uh, are being hired by wealthy folks in the United States as protection for the inevitable mobs that are going to form as a result of the planet boiling, essentially. <laughs> um, so that's their plan. Uh, but I just think it's funny that in the show... <laughs> I mean, uh, when I when I read this article, I couldn't believe it. I was like, the Pinkertons, like Deadwood Pinkertons, the 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 old West Pinkertons, are still around, and are like now this high tech private security firm still serving the wealthiest people. And look, I mean, it's just it's shocking. But like when you watch this, just know this is still a thing, and it's still happening, and it is going to continue to be a thing. It's just nuts. But anyway. I thought I'd I'd point that out. So just to, it's not a, like you know you watch it and you go this is a thing in the past. It's not a thing in the past. It's current. And if it wasn't the Pinkertons, it'd be some other group. But it's actually in this case the same folks. So um, I should, you know maybe I should just that. share an anecdote. Um, my my mom told me about this last year. She was a preschool teacher at Noah's Ark, which you know what that means. No one else <laughs> listening does. Um, when I was born and before I was born, which is it's basically just a, a preschool that was run out of our synagogue. Um, yeah, I, I taught across the hall from her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but basically, I don't remember the event, but it was some something had happened uh, in Israel, maybe. It's like I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was basically there was some fear that there would be 
some sort of retaliation against Jewish communities because of something that had happened, some current event. Mm-mm. And this, I, the, I don't think it was the synagogue, but it was the people who ran the preschool because it was separate. They hired the Pinkertons for security. They did not. They did. That's a hundred. She told me that's a hundred percent true. They did not. Yep. What? And I remember hearing that and thinking, excuse me. <laughs> and this was like the mid nineties. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. It's, I, I still saying it out loud. I, I kind of can't believe Well, then it, it was, it, this article is probably less surprising to you then. Cause then you know that they, oh, I, yeah, I, like no I knew they, they, were they were still, still around. I had no idea. <laughs> because of that. Oh man. As well, like private secure. It's, it's, Absolutely. Talk about close to home. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Woo. Okay. Well, um, so thank you Pinkertons for keeping my mom safe. (laughs) Oh yeah. Super cool. So so you're saying that it was the, the, the preschool hired them or the, I think it was because I can't imagine our synagogue would have done that. And it was a separate kind of separate institutions. Yeah. yeah, They seem like kind of a separate, now it definitely, now it's like a completely separate group, but yeah, yeah, it was, um, that would, yeah, I think that's that's accurate. That it's extremely bizarre. Um, well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Pinkertons, <laughs> nuts. They're real. <laughs> they're out there. I hope they're not listening. I hope they're not listening. Um, if we have any Pinkerton up, listeners, we'd love to have you come on the show. Um, <laughs> any Pinkerton listeners? <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, it's their job to always listen. So that's true. In some way, they're out there. Hang on, I think someone just pulled into my driveway. Um, I'll be right back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a joke um, about the Pinkertons. Um, so yeah, uh, we uh, on that on that cheery note. Uh, <laughs> let's go back to the cheery notes that we've still got left to discuss in the episode. Um, so we learn in this episode, and I, I'm sad to say that I don't think we are going to get any further information on this because from what I can tell, everyone is as confused as <laughs> as, as I am. Um, Odell is dead. Yeah. And this information comes to Al first because Blazanov is just handing telegrams to Al now that are meant mm-hmm. for Hearst. Uh, and then Hearst gets this information, and then Aunt Lou gets this information, and I mean, prior to this, we have this wonderful scene of Aunt Lou teaching um, Richardson how to cure ham properly, and it's really sweet. Adorable. And it seems like yeah. they have a fantastic relationship. Um, and this is a, it's a nice um, little, uh, little bit of a rhyme, or like a, a, it ties off because we have this lovely scene together, and then when she's in grief, they, they embrace and, and console each other, and it's really actually quite heartbreaking. Um but yeah, so uh, so uh, Aunt Lou learns that Odell has uh, has died, um, and Hearst tries to console her, which is weird. And we also don't really know what role he had to play in all of this. And uh, yeah, uh, it's just incredibly tragic and like not really fully explained. <laughs> so yeah, how did yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, this? the implication, I guess, is that this is Hearst is responsible, right? Like that's. I think what we're meant to take from this, um, but it isn't really. And well, certainly, Aunt Lou thinks he's responsible, or, or holds him responsible in some form. Holds him responsible, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a really strange development because we aren't really given any information. It just he just says he died, 
Like, there's no 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 information on what happened to him, or like really any like it's just it's just he's dead, and we're just supposed to understand that maybe Hurst is responsible for that based on their conversation last week, I guess, where Hurst was kind of you know very short with her. And there was some implication, and again, I don't know if I even really... Now I'm not sure if I fully understood that scene, where where she brings in the brooch and asks to have someone sent after him to return it. Um, now I'm not sure what to make of that scene, because is the implication that that scene was the reason that Hurst had him killed? I don't know. And, and we aren't really... And the, the problem is that I don't know how much we're gonna... how much more we're gonna get to kind of elucidate this <laughs> just because there's only three episodes left and it kind of seems like this storyline is over. So I, I yeah, I, I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. Well, I think, you know, I don't know if it's supposed to be an impetus for Aunt Lou to try something and to try and like kill Hearst or something like that. Right. I don't know if that's what, if this is driving, this is plot development for her or a motivation character driving sort of force for her. Um, but yeah, I mean, from just there's a lot of Reddit posts that are what happened to Odell, uh, which I have been it, it pop up every time I search Odell on the um, Google. So I've, now I was I'm like, glad I didn't. Now I'm glad I didn't Google Odell before we got to this. Which episode. is very good. Yes, I I did because I was you know I'm always looking actor names and stuff like that so I can write up the the podcast. But um, yeah, it seems like a lot of people are confused because I think that's probably something that might have been elaborated on or there would be some reveal. And who knows? Perhaps the film deals with it. I don't know. I didn't click any of these links to like Maybe. read in depth because then they might be, oh, yeah, it's resolved in the movie where they explain everything that happened. Maybe they won't yeah. follow up on this at all. I don't know if Aunt Lou's in the movie. I don't even know if Aunt Lou makes it to the end of the series. We'll have to find out. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, bit, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit strange. What I will say is that I, I found it affecting. Um, despite all oh, that, yeah. because Aunt Lou is... Oh, God, the character. scene where she's crying with Richardson... It's so sad. ...broke my heart. It's extremely sad, yes. And it's funny, because like just before that, when she's crying and pushes past Hearst, um, it didn't really have that same effect, and I think it was this this mutual sadness, and also the lack of threat, right? Hearst is a threatening character, so yeah. it's hard to feel sad when you are on guard. And at that moment, you're kind of like exactly. worried about it. Uh, and well, the other thing, is, I completely agree with you. And I think the other thing about that scene is that Hearst is so, bla- he's so clearly being insincere that it's hard to be like, like, I feel for Aunt Lou in that moment. But there is also this feeling of like, he's bullshitting. Like he's completely uh, putting on a show, performing. Uh, there's nothing sincere about how he's approaching the situation. And that just kind of turns your stomach so there's that conflicting emotion that's kind of like I, I feel for her in this moment, but I'm not really. It's not the same of that moment of like of her crying with Richardson, which is just affecting and 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 heartbreaking. I actually read it as even more weird than that, which is that I don't think he's. I don't think he's putting on an act here. I think whether or not he had Odell killed, let's imagine he did, which is an easy thing to imagine. Um, and certainly we can hold him responsible even if he didn't do it, right? Um, because of the sort of the scenario he's manufactured around Odell. Um, he wants to have his cake and eat it too, you know what I mean? His, his whole thing is like, 
I don't want Odell to be a factor, so I'm going to have him killed, let's just say. But I don't want that to affect my life and my relationship with Aunt Lou. And also, I think he does, I don't think it's a, a genuine empathy or care for, um, in, that's anything other than paternalistic and selfish. But he does have some feeling for Aunt Lou. It's some sort of he wants her to mommy him. He wants her to be all these things. And he wants to go through the motions of pretending like he's a normal human who can be empathetic. Even if he's, you know, it's kind of like, there's a scene from something that's coming to mind where, you know, someone's comforting someone else who, for a death that they cause. And they're saying, like, you know, they're, like, patting him on the back, and they're like, oh, you know, well, you know, it was, they had to go, or that kind of thing, and then the person sort of realizes that they were the one who killed them. But that initial consoling wasn't, like, a fake consoling, it was, like, intentional to maybe manipulate that person, you know what I mean? It's, like, that kind of mindset for me, where it's, it's, a it's trying, he's trying to maintain a relationship while also doing the bad thing. Um, because he doesn't look at people like they're humans. Certainly, he doesn't look like at black people like they're humans. He just sees them as like chess pieces in his life that either get out of the way or facilitate some sort of thing in his life, like food um, or whatever. And so I, so I don't read it necessarily as like he's completely making it up. I think he's just he doesn't understand human interaction on like a fundamental level. He's so far divorced from just what normal people think about as we've seen in his many monologues about how he talk, thinks about people, that he, he like, hates that people see him as a monster and all this stuff, but also, like, he obviously plays into that. And I think that's the same sort of thing where he's like, but Aunt Lou doesn't see me as a monster. Yes, she does. Obviously she does. But he's deluded himself into thinking she doesn't. You see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. I don't know that I agree, but I definitely see where you're coming from. It's hard to say, because we um, don't, the problem is we don't know yeah, really what the I mean, situation yeah. is, right? So, like, it, it could be either situation, but it was just how it sort of came across to me. It's just this, this sort of sinister, almost Shakespearean, like, consolation that's just not not real um, in one way or the other. Um, so, yeah, so there's that, and then, I mean, there's Langreach going around town asking everyone to perform. Um, like just all sorts of people. There is one instance where he he Charlie suggests that Jane should come and perform. Um, not to Jane, of course. He wouldn't say that to Jane, uh, but says it to Joni. And um, it's funny because, as I think I've mentioned in a previous podcast, Jane, the real calamity Jane, really did perform in language, uh, languages like uh, performance nights. So you know, whatever with her lasso or whatever she was, she was doing. But she, she was actually a performer, so uh, it's funny to see that. And we didn't actually see her do any of that here, um, so it's not clear uh, that we will. But it was kind of a fun nod to that. Uh, as to the rest of the characters, a lot of them aren't real people in history, so I don't know if they ever did perform. Um, but it's kind of a fun, it was a fun idea to have like a bunch of people in the camp just doing uh, performance, uh, some various performances for the, for the camp. And they're all just kind of, you know, silly tricks and things that, you know, juggling and balancing things on your chin or whatever, which is not easy, I must I must point out, um, having been in a troupe that was similar to this uh, for many, many years. 
it's it's not easy stuff to do, but it is it is just kind of like silly, and it doesn't really it's not really theater. But anyway, it was entertaining. What did you make of this? I'm just the amateur night. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really funny. <laughs> it just the notion of like, and th- what passed for entertainment back in those days was just a really tall guy got on stage and you looked at him and you're like, <laughs> wow, he's so tall. And then that was it. And then that was it. <laughs> I think that's just so funny. And the show is kind of, the show doesn't often revel in that kind of like, oh, look how different things were back then. But this is a moment where it gets to kind of indulge in the ridiculousness from our modern perspective of like, wow, this guy can balance a thing. <laughs> well, even that's e- incredible. Even better is the, uh, well, what's really funny is it reveals what I my favorite bit about this is that it reveals that everyone in the camp everyone in the camp is like working all the time is also finding some time to just do dumb stuff with their tools. <laughs> right? So that's like it's sort of an implication of what's actually going on. Like we always see them hard at work and stuff, but actually <laughs> they go behind their the building <laughs> and balance stuff on their head because they're bored. I mean it's bored. what do you do in Deadwood? I mean, for God's sake. It's not a surprise Nothing. everyone sits around drinking and gambling. Because um, <laughs> what else are you supposed to do? Um but yeah, so so, yeah. I just, I mean, I, I, it was, it was sweet. I just thought it was uh, kind of a strange diversion from from everything else that's going on in the camp. It is exactly like the moment with the bicycle you mentioned, because it is this moment of like that that the way that played was like this moment of unity for the camp of like everyone around can, whatever their differences, they all gather around and they're charmed by even Wolka, by Tom right? It was, Mr. W was uh, was pulled into that. It, exactly yeah so it's really like i mean the sweetest thing what at my heart was broken by that one scene but what warmed it and put it back together again was uh trixie sitting on saul's lap as they watched the show just smiling and laughing that was yeah beautiful and also little detail i do want to mention trixie gave saul her derringer oh yes 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 that's i think i i can only read that as like the most romantic gesture you <laughs> could possibly summon. Take my gun. Very true. Yes, to trust him with it and to um, give up a but sense also of personal like, protection and like uh, yeah no that's no, a it's and a, also is this act of caring like I I want you to be protected that too yeah yeah it has a lot of symbolism despite, despite how like inherently violent a gun is right it's just kind of a funny <laughs> a funny idea um, yeah. That's Trixie, yeah. That's that is Trixie in a nutshell. Um, it's not a whole else, a lot else. Um, I so, want to talk about the what what goes down with the Earps, I guess. Yeah, the Earps and uh, and Jane and Joni, because actually they get quite a few uh, scenes here. So yeah, why don't we start with the Earps? Um, first of all, they just leave. <laughs> yep, they're gone. We were all wondering what their intentions were, what they, what <laughs> secrets they were hiding. It's nope. It's they they were. They're just goodbye. Just passing through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think that's funny. It's almost like a, uh, it's almost like an how the Marvel movies will have a cameo from a, another character just for like two minutes. That's like the Western equivalent of this, the Wild <laughs> West equivalent on Deadwood. It's like, oh wow, the uh, Wyatt Earp was in it for two episodes, and he doesn't really do anything, but it's cool that he was interacting with the other characters. But what's so funny about this is that like. There is a story. First of all, there is a story there. The brevity of it is completely appropriate. As I pointed out last episode, um, the Earps show up in Deadwood for one winter. Uh, they 
have a timber claim, I think. Maybe they don't even have a timber claim. They show up and then they take they they show up go outside of town, go to somebody who's already cut down a bunch of wood, buy the wood from them and then resell it in the town and make like five thousand dollars and then they leave. That's the whole thing. And it's just <laughs> one winter. It's longer than in like what it seems like two days here. Um here they play it as they bought a, a timber claim. It doesn't have any wood, which isn't quite the same thing. And then now they're leaving. So, you know, whatever. But I kind of like the idea of them hustling that you know by by buying and reselling things like that's just that is it's not much of a plot but it's something to sort of but here they don't they don't really have much to do other than provoke and in uh increase the tension in the camp um i mean we do see that like seth and the herbs seem to be on the same side now which is cool except they're leaving so they can't really be allies in the inevitable showdown which would be probably helpful um yeah, so that's it. That's the herbs, really. Um, I just think it's. I, I like this moment where Morgan shoots the, uh, what what the synopsis refers to as a pistolero, which is cool, um, because and, and I just I do want to talk about this in the context of just how Hurst's men are presented in this episode as just so completely despicable and evil and mean and cruel, just like the you know they you know. They, <laughs> even Hurst has kind of, we talk about how Hurst is the most blatantly villainous character the show has ever had just like outwardly evil but these guys come in you know Hurst at least there is shades to him he is kind of a full character mm. um these guys are just like jerks they're just mean <laughs> and violent and when like the one guy who goes to uh to beat up Merrick is just like he's just he's awful what are these terrible and the you know all of them and their black black hats and black outfits um just so sinister and so terrifying and i love that one of the first things that happens is a completely random apparently insignificant character shoots one of them in the leg <laughs> just instantly escalating tensions um i think that's great yeah no it is and i also i think it's worth noting that you know we didn't know the names of these various Pinkertons and some of them may not even be named. Um, in fact, many of them probably aren't, but that's part of, I think the point, right? If they're not named yeah. in the episode for a reason. Like we're not supposed to be like, Oh, that's John, right? John, the Pinkerton, right? It's, they're the Pinkertons, the unit, the, the corporation, the, the security force, whatever. Um, which I think it dehumanizes them, but they're the Pinkertons. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, what, what we're looking for there. Um, there's the, they've always been on this show, even in the abstract, which they've always been to this point, really, except for Isaac Hammond. Uh, a nebulous cloud of folks who can be called in and that everybody in town sort of hates and fears and doesn't want anywhere near them, um, especially like Al, for example. Um, so it's kind of good that they don't, you know, that they sort of retain that anonymity, even though we, we have certain ones that talk more and whatever, but they're just the Pinkertons. Um, you know, Captain Turner was named constantly. Mm -hmm. The main Pinkerton is not named by Hurst. He doesn't go like, well, I'm going to have Captain blah, blah, blah. No, he doesn't say any of that. Um, I also love the scene where Charlie punches the dude. Yeah. That yep. was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, uh, Seth really. By the way, Seth really loves grabbing people by the ear. Doesn't oh yes, he, he does. <laughs> it's, 
just like he just that's his favorite move. You're going to timeout. It's time for timeout. <laughs> I love when he's also, like he he says that he has that moment where he says, uh, "Don't make me do what I want to do" or something like that. Uh, and it's like no, I he think says the you, opposite. He says, "Please, like, give me a reason to do what I want to okay, do." Give me a reason. That's what it is. Um, but I was like, "What you want to do is pull him by the ear. That seems to be your thing. That's your <laughs> weird fetish, Seth. We all know it." <laughs> Um, it's his favorite. It's his favorite. Uh, it's his kink. Um, so Jesus Christ! <laughs> oh come on! It clearly <laughs> is. Um, look, we've never seen a Martha, Seth sex scene, which actually brings us to Martha and Seth. So oh, God. Uh, Mar- <laughs> Martha I don't and uh, and Seth. Uh, I just want to bring up. I like their first scene together in this episode. Yeah, me too. It's, it's actually really good. Um, they have a a really frank conversation about the inevitable showdown with Hearst and the quote eventualities that may arise. And basically Seth says, here's the combination so that you can get all of my stuff (laughs) if I die. (laughs) Um, And she just gives it to her very slyly, like in code in code. And then she just says it all. Um, But it's, I mean, it's a, it's a clever combination and, and what it does is it gives, um, it, it sort of puts them on. It, Martha has to acknowledge the reality and the, the fatality situation, which she seems to have been aware of. But she's, you know, it, they're all on the same page about how this is going to potentially go quite bad. And she she clocks the situation quickly when he's like, "This might be important," and she goes, "This has to do with the guys who just showed up, right?" And he's like, mm-hmm. no. uh, "So I love that." But then there's this point where um, Seth offers to walk with Martha, and it's a great moment because it's not clear if it's out of affection, which it very well could be because they clearly are, have been building their relationship and that's very believable. And I think that is part of it. Or if it's for protection following their conversation. And you can see on Anna Gunn's face, this moment where she smiles when he first offers. And then just as before it cuts away to a different scene, um, it, the, the smile starts to falter a little bit, and you realize mm. that like she's also yeah. going. Oh, this is also a protection thing, isn't it? Like we're not safe anymore. Um, and it's just a it's a it's a great scene. Yeah, I really I I wrote that in that moment too. That was my my big takeaway from that moment is that uh, that bit of her initially being happy that he's offered to walk with her and the children, and then realizing kind of the significance of that, both because uh, it's kind of a moment of affection denied right mm. it's it's this it's this thing she was you know excited about for this person I, I don't know if they love each other but they clearly have a pretty good relationship at this point um but like it, seth it, seth walks straight by alma and barely acknowledges her in this episode that's true and goes straight to martha that's, in that way is that, growth that's growth and for both of them um, they both they don't like stare after each other longingly they're just like sort of acknowledge each other and, and move on yeah um so, uh, yeah now of course this all could be show you know, while Martha's around to sort of keep it whatever, but it seems organic. Um, I also just, I wanted to point out this, uh, there's a great match cut in this episode. I don't know if you, I'm sure you noticed it, but there's a scene where Al is on a, just to point out one other thing about the camera work, because there's not a lot to comment on, I felt like, but there were those weird handheld shots that were kind of close up and almost wide angle lenses. Um, But then also there's this shot of Al, who's on the balcony of his, of the gem. And he walks back inside and towards the left-hand side of the screen. And then out of the left-hand side of the screen in the next shot 
Hearst comes out. So it's like this complete match cut of the two of them. Yeah. Like become in this one motion. It's very, uh, it's cool though. Cause I mean, as you said, this episode is about this, this dichotomy between them in, in, in some ways. Um, all right. So the last, uh, the last series of scenes I would say is about, uh, Jane and Joni. Yeah. I mean, you know, we get a lot of their interaction, which is really sweet. Obviously them holding hands in the thoroughfare is so nice. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sweeping together and also supporting each other when, um, you know, there's that great scene when, when they walk with the kids and I think Jane says right off the bat that she, you know, she wants J- uh, Joni to stay close because uh, she, she says, I might need you for support. Um, which is like obviously literally because she's very drunk and <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, tragic in that sense, but also it obviously has this second meaning that Joni has been supportive to her and also they they uh, they obviously care about each other a lot. Um, and we see this really emphasized throughout the rest of the episode. I mean, there's like close ups on their hands and close ups on this and that, and then there's an entire scene where um, we can talk about, it, but size shows up and Jane sort of goes to bat for her in her way. Uh, Jane seems to have a general uh, policy of just running away from situations. and um, But in this case, she does actually get someone else to get involved, uh, which is helpful. And uh, and I also want to point out that Moe's manual is really, uh, you know, he's really stepped up to the plate. Seriously. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Moe's, what a turnaround this character has made. <laughs> I kind of like him now. He's, I mean, I've liked him since he ever since he started doing yoga outside, and the as <laughs> as as Wolcott killed himself in the background. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a weird show. Um, Seriously, you don't really think about it that way until you kind of dig into scenes like that, huh? Yeah, I mean, ser- I mean, Wolcott in general is just such a weird, weird character. Um, also, just weirdness. Uh, we'll, let's talk about Sai, but I just want to point out Jari making weird bird noises at Hearst. <laughs> Oh what my god. What the hell was happening in that, that scene? That was the moment. That was the moment where I was like, "Oh, that's why they cast Steven Tobolowski." Yeah, you said that actually last time when they uh when he had another like super weird scene. But that's like at right. least that made some sense with the, it was like with prostitutes or something. But here he's mm-hmm. just in out of back, nowhere. Yeah. We haven't seen him interact with Hurst at all, I don't think. And he's just like making bird noises and talking about him throwing up into his mouth. I mean, it's so strange. And like not even it doesn't even match his like weird deferential tone later on, um, because he's afraid of being on the, the, the veranda and all the rest of it. Um, but it's just like this one particular scene. It's like uh, you know what it reminds me. It reminds me of like a little bit of, of of those scenes in Twin Peaks where characters just start acting extremely weird, and then that's not really like like in grief or in whatever, but they just start do like behaving sort of erratically and he just does it here but like there's no backstory to it he's just a freak like jari's just a weird guy and he doesn't seem to understand at all how grift bribery or anything works like and we see this and how he deals with adams uh and we see it how he deals with sai and other folks and here it's just it's super weird i will say by the way there's an amazing shot of uh of johnny and dan smoking uh, when Jari and uh, Adams are talking to each other, and it's it's really fantastic because there's like the smoke and the light. It just it looks really cool. It has nothing. It's not like a relevant scene. It's just a, an interesting one, um, or, or a cool shot. 
But anyway, yeah. I do want to. I do want to talk about um, Joni in this episode because there are two great moments where it's like, and again, it kind of make we'll, and then we'll get to the scene with Sai. Okay. Because it makes it so much more tragic, I think, because there are these two great moments. The first moment is, um. Oh God, I don't remember the second one. Okay, so the first moment is when Martha asks her to walk with them. Right. And she starts to refuse, but then she says, you know what? No, yeah, I will. And that is this first moment we've seen of her in so long where she isn't pushing people away and she isn't isolating herself Mm. and she is actually putting herself out there. And I should have written down what the other moment is. But there's a second scene. Is it with Charlie, perhaps? Charlie and... uh, Yes, it is. It totally... I don't remember what... Oh, God, what happens, though? What does she say? Um... She shows Just up and, and, she, and she doesn't want to stay with, she, she's going to leave. Langrish is like, I want to leave Charlie with what I've just proposed to him. Um, and she says she'll leave too, but then she ends up staying sort of, she's sort of half in, half out of the door talking to Charlie. Um, and Charlie's just sort of rambling and feels it's like the he's the very last thing. thing she says. And I remember it. I don't remember what she says, but she says it. And because the, the last shot of the scene is Charlie gets this huge smile on his face. Dude, what was the, what did she leave him with? Oh my God. <laughs> it's going to kill me. Cause it is this beautiful moment. It's, and it's whatever it is, it's the exact same thing of like, Oh, the, it's so nice. Like she's being, she's opening herself up again to other people. And I, I, that makes that just warms my heart. It's just so nice to see that because for so long this season especially ever basically ever since woke had killed all of her girls like she has been so shut down Mm. except maybe with jane so it's and and it's now that she's in this relationship with jane that she's able to that she feels more comfortable opening up to other people like that's i think think that i think that's beautiful i love that if you give me just one moment i'll check and just see what that line is because i am curious myself sure All right. Uh, she says, uh, I was just stopping by to say good morning. Yeah. So again, yeah. Okay. So she says that. I don't remember why that struck me, but maybe it plays more in, in well, the context of the scene. Maybe it plays, but it is this moment of like, no, but it is, I mean, it's what's, what's striking about that scene is how Charlie responds to it. Exactly. That he's just yeah. happy that she has stopped by for that and not for a particular purpose. Um, and I think he's just pleased by the concept of her getting out. You know, maybe he sees her as being quite exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Unable to, um, and he even says later, he asks someone to say, you know, hi to Joni for her for him. Um, so yeah, no, I, it's a it's a really sweet uh, it's a sweet little moment. Um, that you know, I I agree, it does it does uh, bolster the tragedy of what happens later. But I think this the scene later is the scene that you were talking about, the scene that you had predicted that. Joni was going to have to make a final stand and and cut off from Sai. So, I mean, do you think that this is that scene? Or does it indicate there's more coming? I think it definitely indicates that there's more coming, but I do think that that this is that moment where all she says to him is get out. There is no, like, equivocating. There's no hesitance. She says, you need to leave. And Sai, what I love about, what's sad about this moment is, is it's, it's a reminder 
even as we see her making progress in this episode, it's this reminder of like, Sai is never going to leave her alone. Mm -hmm. Like he is just always going to haunt her. But then it is kind of this moment of sweetness of like, but now she has opened herself up to people and she has other people who support her and can help her. Including Moe's manual. (laughs) Including even if it's Moe's manual. Like, and and, and also a building that she feels connected to that. She's like, you can't come in here. This is my space. Um, and it's not the Shazami, which he, I think, supported financially, whatever. This is its own thing that he has zero connection and zero right to be involved in. And he's sort of like, you know, magically warded off from coming into the... Obviously, he could come in, but he doesn't. Now, whether or not he would, which definitely is implied that he would, uh, is is a separate thing. But he doesn't come into this space that's hers. And it's kind of nice that this space exists. And it also, by the way, just as a point of interest, we had said, like, what are Joni and Jane, for example, doing now for a job? Um, you know, Jane occasionally does odd jobs, but it looks like maintaining the schoolhouse, despite the fact that, you know, it, it kind of made sense before because it was their building or it was Joni's building. This is a new building that actually they have no connection to whatsoever. Um, not really. I mean, Joni asked for it to be built, but it, it's for Martha or whatever, but she's maintaining it um, by, you know, that they're sweeping the, the building, for example. Um, and I think that that's, it gives them a sense of purpose and a sense of like, this is our places where we work. This is potentially where they live. It's not really clear. Um, this is our space and, and Sai just is not welcome there in any way, shape or form. And he does not have a foothold there either. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, a it's an important distinction as to whether that's going to manifest in a more contentious way in the future remains to be seen granted we only have three episodes left and we know alas Travis Booth has uh has passed away so I don't think we'll see a resolution to that necessarily in the film but um yeah it's uh it's definitely a step forward for Joni even though it is quite a a scary and traumatic scene yeah exactly I think that's exactly how I would put it yeah it's a and what's also funny about Sai in this scene is that where he leaves, it is like, well, I have other places to be. And oh yeah, we know. We know the reason he's there is that he doesn't, and he he Absolutely. like Al, like Al, he feels completely useless and completely powerless, and that's why he's done this. He's just gone to harass Joni to feel like he has power over exactly, someone. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, when he says that, it really it strikes a chord because, as I said, Joni does have a purpose now. It's you know being there for Jane. It's looking after the schoolhouse. It's being a part of the community, and size like. You know, I don't really do anything anymore. I, I don't have any sort of influence. Um, other people have come and taken my like pseudo villainous role from me, and I'm not contributing in any other way to the what's going on in the camp. So, you know, it, he just isn't. He's sort of a floating entity. He sort of swapped with Joni. Joni now has purpose, and I think that's kind of cool that he's been diminished <laughs> in light of mm-hmm. her ascendancy. Uh, it doesn't oh, have to and, happen that way, but it's a, it's a nice... Uh, and Powers Booth's performance in this scene, the way he, like, slumps against the doorframe, yeah. just looking completely pathetic, is it's so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, uh, that about does it for this episode. Um, just, uh, I, I really like this fight. We, we, we talked about it, what happens in this scene, but I, I like the final scene with Al singing to himself. Um, I, I also just want to point out that this is also perhaps an illusion. So, uh, aside from the fact that it may have to do with him and his relationship to Lane Grish, as we discussed, um, the gem itself was the theater in, 
the real Deadwood. So it's kind of funny that oh. he's singing in a place that it's like, well, that's just a, a saloon, but actually in the real, it was the gem theater, I think the gem theater and saloon or gem theater. Anyway, it was the theater. So um, kind of a funny uh, little twist on that where he tells the one performer who comes in to leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there you have it. Uh, next week is a constant throb. So, yeah. Sounds unpleasant, sounds, but okay. Sounds uh, interesting. Um, excellent. All right. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that next week. Uh, for those of you out there who are listening to this uh, now but uh, would like to find us again in the future, uh, make sure you subscribe uh, on MovieFail. Um, you can just submit your email, and you'll get emails every time we post a new article or, or podcast. You can also subscribe uh, to the podcast itself via... Uh, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, RSS Reader, whatever else uh, you want to use. Uh, or you can just listen to it straight on our website where we do a write-up, include links, uh, like I will to that New York Times article I mentioned, uh, and to other uh, interesting things, including sh- specific shots we may have mentioned in the in the episode. So uh, definitely check that out. Uh, and Esther, until next time. All right.